Hello, I'm Paco Alvarez, and this is the backstory from Type Investigations, where we sit down with our reporters and ask them to take us behind the scenes of their work. Since the beginning of the pandemic, thousands of children in New York City, disproportionately those who are Black, Hispanic, and Asian, have lost a parent or caregiver to COVID-19, nearly double the national rate. In their newest article, produced in partnership with the City, Columbia Journalism Investigations, and City Limits, reporters Fazel Khan and Liz Donovan investigated the city's response to the influx of grieving children and spoke to immigrant families who said they aren't getting the help they need. In this conversation, we talked to Fazel and Liz about what it was like reporting on the crisis for over a year, how they reached out to grieving families, and their difficulties getting answers from the New York Department of Education. So my first question, what initially inspired the investigation and what were the first steps both of you took? I'll try to answer that question because we started this story, not exactly this story, how it ended up to be. We started thinking of ideas in late 2021 and because we'd been in the pandemic for more than a year at that point of time and things seemed like they were getting back to normal. So we thought of coming up with an idea or reporting something, investigating something that would look at the long-term impacts of the pandemic and how communities, marginalized communities or vulnerable communities were getting affected by it and how the pandemic had changed their lives in permanent ways. So we started looking into some ideas, started, did some initial reporting. And somewhere towards the end of the year, we came across, through our interviews, we got to know that there is this group of children who've lost parents or caregivers to COVID-19. And it is around the same time when reports were coming out, which were like basically estimating that this could be the number that we're looking at of such kids. And around the same time, we came across social worker numbers in New York City schools. We wanted to focus the story in New York City. So we came across these numbers and then we came across hearings of the Committee on Education, what they were discussing uh, around this subject. And slowly through our interviews, we started realizing that this was something that was going on. And that's how basically we came to the point where we thought that this is a story that we want to pursue. And this is something that is specifically something that we want to investigate. You mentioned uh, the the data on like the number of social workers. A, a large part of the investigation is is based on like your analysis of that data. And I was I was kind of curious. How did you get your your hands on on the data for the social workers? And like, how did the the analysis happen? So, I am not a U.S. citizen. I'm from India, and when we started thinking about that, we were we wanted to look into mental health resources in New York City schools, I just started right like from scratch. I started Googling stuff and I ended up on this page that NYC Department of Education has where they report guidance counselor and social worker numbers. I saw these files, saw the latest numbers that were available at that point. And what I saw was something like that majority of like not majority, but like 
lot of schools didn't have like full-time social workers on staff. So I thought of that as something which was very stark where uh, it seemed like uh, the money that comes into the education system here in New York City and how much of that was going to mental health services, especially in this specific time of need. So basically downloaded all of those files. So this particular data set, they've been publishing this data set since 2015. That was the first time they published it. And I think there was some advocacy before that to make that happen. And I know I've downloaded that data so many times during the course of this reporting. Uh, and just like I started doing some basic analysis on that, how many schools did not have a social worker. And that's how like we also like started calling those schools and it kind of lags a bit, the publication of, data, of the data. So yeah, I mean, the the analysis itself wasn't wasn't very sophisticated in the sense that we ran any any algorithms or anything it was just like basic numbers where we were just looking at which schools did not did have a full-time social worker which school didn't and where it got a little bit sophisticated was where when we combined the covid data and this particular data and we started looking at neighborhoods which were affected by COVID uh, more than others and what was the situation like in schools within those neighborhoods. Another important part of the investigation, obviously, was um, you spoke to several immigrant families about the deaths of their loved ones. How did you find and get in contact with those families? Yeah, I can answer this. Um, I did a lot of the, the conversations with the families. Um, they came in through different ways. One of the families had previously been featured in the city. Um, the, the father was an MTA worker. Another came to us, student that we start the story off with, um, Yureli. Uh, that family came to us from the little girl's teacher who wrote into Missing Them. The other family, Charlene, who is now in New Jersey, uh, wrote in as well. Most of them, I think, came in through forms. Oh, another family, the family, the Egyptian family we spoke with, we got their name from uh, actually a funeral home. Um, obviously, the home had contacted the family first to see if they'd be willing to talk with journalists. And then we reached out to them. I just I just want to add to like why to that like one little bit is that Ronnie and like the, the Fletcher family, I when I reached out to them, I didn't know that they'd already been featured in in any previous The City article. How I contacted her for the very first time was through a union contact. Uh, so her husband had been part of the transport workers union. And I we did actually reach out to a lot of unions and that was one uh, lead that resulted in multiple conversations. and actually like like finally being in the story um and in terms of like the actual conversations how, how did you approach talking to the families about such a sensitive subject uh were there any like particular challenges of, of interviewing children who had lost parents or caregivers yeah i mean um it was the hardest reporting i've ever done it took a lot of time and we were fortunate with this project that we had a lot of time i joined it later in the process. So I think Fazel worked on this ultimately about a year and a half, and I worked on it for about a year. And one of the families, for instance, I first spoke with, I think in February of last year, and then couldn't get in touch with them again. I spoke with 
the father and um, the daughter, who's now 17, Rana. Um, I didn't get in touch with them again for um, another eight months or so. Um, and they ended up being an excellent resource for this story when I was really grateful that we had that time to keep circling back with them. As far as the kids, yeah, we did a podcast with the Fletcher family and the kids were just so amazing. They were really open and articulate. And the first time I met with that family, they really barely spoke a word. So again, that relationship built over time. Um, really worked to our advantage and gave the kids the opportunity to feel comfortable and to open up. We were really grateful that we were able to just let that kind of relationship marinate um, over the year that I was working on the project anyway. Yeah, as both of you mentioned, uh, the investigation took place over a long period of time. And Fazi, you talked about this a bit at the beginning, but how did the scope of the investigation change over that time? Did your understanding of the New York Department of Education's response to the pandemic change? It did to a great degree. Like, I think by the time we were nearing the end, I think there was one point somewhere in the investigation where I brought in like more recent data and because the duration was so long we worked on this story for more than a year actually and things were happening at certain points uh during the reporting like a bill being introduced in the legislature about having probably acs uh track such kids and what's happening to them and then you'd have announcements here and there about the mental health support being provided, budget cuts happening or not. And then we had sort of these transcripts from a committee on education where we could actually like create a chronological kind of a map where we could see when people were talking about what sort of things. So, yeah, I mean, my understanding was enhanced to a great degree about how, how the situation is like and how the system works. It's difficult to penetrate at times when you want to like really investigate things, really want to talk to people. We had a very hard time like reaching people from the DOE and talking to them, be it teachers or be it people in official capacity. But yeah, we, we had to find ways to actually get something that we wanted, something that, that would have what that would one really support the story and also elements which were like missing from the story some things that we could have only gotten from the doe and nowhere else so yeah and many new characters also emerged through the reporting like we would come across okay this partner organization also is also working with the department this particular expert is being is 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 working with the department as well so yeah i mean Throughout the duration, things were moving all the time, and we tried to cover as much ground as possible. I think the thing, too, is that we used a lot of just, you know, really old school boot leather reporting tactics. You know, we went to after school pickups and talked with parents at schools um, where we knew we had talked with parents. We actually printed out 
flyers or surveys rather on paper and gave them to schools in the areas, the neighborhoods that we were looking at and asked them to fill it out, just asking questions about how many social workers they had and what type of guidance they got from central DOE about identifying and providing resources for children who lost parents. We, you know, we just tried to talk with people in person. Um, one of our, one of the parents that we spoke with, again, the, the Ecuadorian family that we lead the story with, um, we went, we, the phone number we were given for her didn't work. So we just went to her house and knocked on her door and interviewed her and the children there. So it's a lot of, it was a lot of in-person reporting, um, that we did, which is why it was so great that it was a New York city story that we were able to do that. And just, just to add to that, we had a really hard time finding families in the beginning. And I actually did distribute flyers in New York City neighborhoods where we knew that the like the virus had led to many more deaths than uh, compared to other uh, neighborhoods in the city. So we were just like giving these flyers to like community organizations, local groups or churches or, or any religious um um, institution in that neighborhood. And I think it was soon after we we sent out the survey and we tried other approaches. And when Liz joined uh, is when we started hearing back from families. And that's when we started kind of building out the narrative. You briefly mentioned this before, but um, what were your interactions with the New York Department of Education like? Like, how was it trying to get information from like officials or trying to speak to them? It was very difficult. We were in contact with the communications office at the DOE. Uh, we'd send questions, we'd get responses, but they wouldn't answer all of our questions. We'd try to get follow up, still wouldn't get the answer. They wouldn't let us communicate with, you know, for instance, the current chancellor or with a uh, principal in one case who we name in the story we wanted to speak with, they wouldn't let us talk with him. Um, they told us that he declined the interview out of the respect for the families. And we tried to convince them to let him speak with us, but that didn't happen. So it, it, it was, it was really challenging. Um, I wouldn't have said they were the most forthcoming agency. Bill de Blasio was very willing to talk. Uh, he was great as was the former chancellor, uh, Dr. Porter um, I called both of their cell phones and they they spoke with me. I didn't do that too through DOE though. I think we had more success with ex-employees uh, and ex-officials than we did with current employees and current officials. Uh, when we reached out to schools, there was a recurring theme where we would either reach out directly to the principal or the social worker guidance counselor or vice principal at that school. And we'd get a response, which was something like we had to like come through the DOE official channel. And only then they talk to us and the DOE official channel wasn't, I mean, I personally didn't have much interaction on a phone or or like uh, in-person interaction with current DOE officials or spokespeople. And we didn't want this, but a lot of the responses that we got were on an email in a written response from them. And as much as we tried to, to actually have them talk to us, uh, and if I'm not wrong, like Liz got like a 10 minute call with them. That That was all that we got. Yeah, there was there was a lot of fear, I would say, among DOE employees, and that goes for people within 
former and current people in the, the agency itself and working at the schools. I even had, I had one teacher literally run away from me. Well, <laughs> I tried to ask him questions. Um, and yeah, that was, it was difficult. And then as Fazl mentioned, we got, I think it was a, a 12 minute call. I got with somebody at DOE who could only answer questions on one specific part of, of my, of all the questions that we had, she could only answer some of them. So it was somewhat helpful, but not everything that we were asking for. Yeah. And my last question, um, what were some of the challenges of working on a project with, with so many different like reporters and editors? I took account of the people who were mentioned at, at, at the bottom of the story, like credited for like working with us and helping like making this story what it ended up to be. And yeah, there, there there are challenges when you're like trying to one, you're trying to coordinate amongst so many people and not all of them were there at the same time, just to be sure. Um, there were people who were there probably just during the initial reporting of the story. There were people who were part of the team when we were still trying to find families. And then there are people who were there like towards the end of uh, us, like actually drafting it and finally publishing the story. So coordination issues were there in the sense that um, it, it kind of became difficult. Also, like we were we were starting new jobs uh, towards the end of the story, uh, towards the end of our reporting process. So it kind of became like what strand are we picking and what particular thing are we focusing on improving within the story when we had the draft already and where did we need someone's help because we couldn't devote as much time because we were stretched then in terms of our availability because we were starting these new jobs. But then with many people come many uh, perspectives and opinions. So just just trying to figure out what's the best approach to telling this story. And we know that everyone wanted the best thing in the end. And just like accommodating as many opinions as we could, just accommodating, just just trying to get the best language possible for what we wanted to say and how we wanted to say it, just getting just being factually correct where um, you helped us a lot as well. So just, yeah, there, it, it was a challenge. It was a great learning experience as well. And I think overall, it did really help us in, in improving the story and um, bringing it to a point where we were confident and we were, we were bringing it to a point where it, it, really tried to bring together a lot of things that were happening like around this issue and try to cover as much as we could and try to tell it in as coherent a way as possible. Yeah, and I think I'll just add on that we had three really brilliant editors to work with on this which was a gift. Um, two of them I had worked with previously. Um, this story was done through Colombia's Global Migration Project. Uh, it's another reason why we focused on immigrant families. 
And I had done that fellowship previously and came back on to help Fossil finish the story. But we had the editor from that, the obvious editor-in-chief from Type, Cassie, and then the editor from the city, Anjali, um, who were just incredible. And they all have a different style and a different perspective. And we kind of got to be able to blend all of those into one story. So it was just a matter of all of us putting our heads together and figuring out how all those styles worked seamlessly in an article, which I think we did by the end. You can read Fazel and Liz's article, The Pandemic Robbed Thousands of New York City Children of Parents, Many Aren't Getting the Help They Need, at the City, City Limits, or the Type Investigations website. Check our show notes for links. A transcript of this backstory is available at typeinvestigations.org backstory.